Democratic republics were always intentionally, um, at least in the last 400 years, there to undermine and destroy, throne and altar. And it's amazing to me how many people uh, are afraid to talk about this, won't admit this, when it's just patently obvious to anyone who believes the history of the church, believes what's in the Bible, um, and doesn't think that the goal is to mesh Christianity with classical liberalism. The church has doesn't have any saints that have promoted any democratic or Republican governments. There's never been an Orthodox saint touting or favoring those forms of government. There are countless saints and warrior saints who were kings and who talked about the goodness of monarchy. And most recently, St. John of Kronstadt's whole famous thing on monarchy. So I think this is just the most natural form of government to a people. It's the, it's the only form of government that the church has a, a semi-sacramental service for, a coronation cer- ceremony. So that's what we should shoot for. So this one's a real actionable, insight-filled talk with the mighty Jade Wire, philosopher and comic. We cover orthodoxy strength and nationalism and folk, how to detect and deflect psyops, and how to protect new right-wing institutions from takeover, orthodoxy, superior ontological access to the transcendent over other forms of Christianity, why triad orthodoxy is the solution to the bugman lifestyle, and the bugman attack, and to protecting the gold within from profane modernism. Hope you enjoy it. When I first came across you, it was on uh, Alex Jones's right. This is before I became a, uh, a subscriber. And okay. I just, I took you to be, uh, okay, he's one of uh, Alex Jones's conspiracy guys, right? Because uh, you had the lighting, you had this sort of, um, you've got that, gr- and I love it because now I know what it is. It's the 1980s style, glowing style Miami lighting, yeah. right? But when exactly. I thought it at the time, I thought I was okay, one of his conspiracy guys. And then later on, when I, when people, uh, had recommended you, I think this must be why you'll, uh, make this work. But what other people don't do, and you are sort of strange and anomaly in that you are a genre bending guy. You're both philosopher, lay theologian, historian, and comedian and conspiracy guy right so when i came across i thought and i saw when i first started watching i saw the poster in the background i thought okay and then i started i i bought your lectures from your uh website i thought this guy's a philosopher so (laughs) what made you think when did you first decide to do the genre mashing of that and when did you see that it was working this genre mashing i suppose it's a bit to do with the technology, having the ability to have your own following, because I think that's a big part of it, word of mouth. Sure. Then people watch you, because a lot of your videos are, you'll do, some people stick with whatever genre video, but you'll do anything, you'll go to this, your education stuff, and then you'll do a bit of historian, conspiracy, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's a great question. I think that <clears throat> with a lot of people <clears throat> doing internet content, the expectation is that you would be kind of a one-dimensional only focus on a niche and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. And you can probably build an audience faster if you just have one area that you're kind of, uh, you know, accumulating a, a standing within. But for me, it was a multiple, uh, reasons why I didn't go that route. I kind of started out just doing geopolitical espionage stuff a long time ago. And I realized that doesn't really garner much of a following. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll test out some other ways to, gain an audience i'm not doing it just to gain an audience but doing it because you know figuring out what's the best thing that i enjoy to do that also gains an audience right and so got into doing a lot of movie analysis and that was really picking up a lot more traction uh, 11 12 years ago when i started blogging quite a bit about movies um but i'm always uh 
I've always got a bunch of different interests, reading a bunch of different books going on, you know, all, all that's going on at once. And so part of it is just getting bored of the same topic. Like I can't just talk about movies all the time. So um, yeah, I think you're right that the internet just kind of afforded people the opportunity to express their multiple dimensional interests and kind of lay that out for people and, and over time just see who kind of, you know, trickles in because it's it, on the one hand, it's both a positive and it's a negative because people get confused. A lot of times they come across something and maybe I'm acting ridiculous and they think, Oh, you can't take that guy serious. Here's this video where he's being ridiculous. Right. But then there's all kinds of other videos where we're just doing, you know, multiple hour academic lectures that are totally serious. So, um, those, that's a pro and a con. So I guess it, it really just appeals to a certain kind of person, but, uh, mainly born out of boredom and monotony. But what it does do, I think, is that there's a guy that I follow who's, uh, on one of our guys on, I don't know, he's, well, I don't know your politics that well, but on, on the right wing of things, you are at least that, um, called Michael Milliman. He's a political philosopher, right? And he posted recently saying, I hope my shit posting doesn't think that, doesn't make the people who follow me think that, uh, I'm not a serious person that sort of thing, right? I hope it doesn't stop them from, because this is something we all do. You do a lot of that. So another thing that I think you do is give people, uh, and I think academics or people that are trying to leave academia should take you as a great uh, inspiration or something to project possibilities upon because it shows that you can shitpost but also do deeply serious content at the same time. It's giving an option for that because this hoity-toity sort of, oh, must be a serious Cambridge yeah. academic, right? That is kind of a way of gatekeeping ideas and people and stop. That's Absolutely. what they've done for, for centuries, right? Is oh, you have to make you have to meet this properness or this particular thing, and it, it doesn't end there, though, is it? It's it, it continues into ideas. So I think that's another part of it. It's not just the fact of genre bending. It's giving an option for, and that's what technology's done in a way as well. Is giving an option for thinking people like yourself to actually build their own academy online, which you're now doing. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh- yeah, you nailed it. I think there's nothing inherently wrong per se with that old legacy model. And I guess it goes back to the notion of specialization and people kind of having one niche, you know, you know, think about the boomers, the boomers would uh, default to the newsman and he's the authoritative newsman because he studied the news for many years and he went and got a news degree. And so he knows how to be very official and tell you the news. Um that's the old model. That's the legacy model. We're in the age of the internet now, for better or for worse. And the reality is that uh, individuals are the the focus. Uh, it is the, I mean, it's not just the individual, but it's like, if you try to just be a news reporter or a journalist and not have your personality or your other interests involved, again, that's kind of the older model and, and it's not bad, but it's going to be limiting for, you know, where we're going. I think that, you know, Alex is one of the early people to really break that through in terms of the the mold of like, you're not supposed to be a journalist and a comedian and a radio host and a documentary filmmaker, right? Because this idea was that if you're a journalist, you're this neutral figure that's only reporting the facts and you don't let your uh, biases spill into it. Well, that's not really reality. I mean, everybody has their presuppositions and their paradigm from which they interpret reality. So perfect object objectivity isn't really attainable. It's not a real, a real thing. Um, and that doesn't make me a postmodernist. It just makes me a, a presuppositionalist. So I think that, you know, that's where we are and, uh, we can either acquiesce to the new reality and, you know, set up the new models of education, which are going to be outside of the legacy university system, which is largely brainwashing anyway. 
uh, or we can try to, you know, fight against the the future uh, and just wither away with no audience. I find that you can actually, one of the benefits of the modern age is that when you follow an individual person, you can uh, realize and figure out their personal biases. So say it's a journalist. So it's easier than doing that than a newsman that can hide it away. But if you follow oh. Jay Dyer, you can watch him over his streams. You go, ah, oh, I see what his flaws are. So I see where his biases may lay. And then you can figure out easier what the news may be, right? And on that on that subject as well, in this modern age, I think people are that's one practice someone can use is do that is look for an individual's bias but perhaps you might have some others that how to rather than just exposing psyops what perhaps practices or procedures can you enact to decode or avoid them how to see them actual particular thing to do to do that rather than yeah yeah i think understanding that the way media was set up in the last century mass media was itself set up by people from the OSS and people who were uh, masters of psyops, quite literally Sarnoff, Paley, all these figures that went from the OSS, other people from consulting agencies, uh, ad agencies, ma admin, madmen, you know, going into setting up mass media. And then, you know, something that we just uh, covered a, a couple of nights ago on a live stream was going back and looking at anthropology and looking at how, some of the anthropologists that have been recruited into intelligence work over the years were uh, utilizing a certain army field manual that came out in 2007. That was a technique and a technology for changing the uh, ideology of Iraq during the, the desert storm war and all that. And that 2007 manual talks about setting up certain types of uh, uh, new religious ideas, setting up new types of media projection ideas. And so quite literally everything that they do in the foreign uh, theaters of war they also do domestically. So that's what we have to understand is that mass media was set up to do that. Now, I'm not, uh, you know, some sort of utopian or, or uh, bleary eyed, like progressive about the, the Internet. I think the Internet, unfortunately, is having overall probably a detrimental effect. There are a lot of positives, but I wonder if the Internet isn't going to just destroy the world eventually because of because of the power of you know big tech and this kind of stuff. But anyway, long story short, I think, um, you know, this is the new model for better, or for worse. Uh, and it does allow you to see things more honestly, ironically, like you said, than the legacy system, which is supposed to be based on neutrality and objectivity, but wasn't. It was a lie. And so it's, to me, it's more honest, like you're saying, to have people that are actually giving analyses from their worldview, from their perspective, because that's really how we all operate anyway. We all have basic assumptions about metaphysics, epistemology, ethics that we interpret the world by. And so for me, it's a question of whose interpretations are correct, right? I don't think everything is interpretation when I'm not a relativist, not a subjectivist, but uh, we all do interpret the information, the data, the facts. They're not brute facts. They, they require, they're theory laden. They have a, a, you know, context by which we interpret them. So it's a question of who has the correct paradigm, worldview and context to interpret the facts. <laughs> well, there's a few things there. There's one thing is so resisting in the modern age, resisting disintegration. That seems really important these days, especially with the attack on men and fraternity and men's groups. So perhaps maybe for you, you might be able to talk a bit about, I don't know if you were always in traditional or conservative um, groups when you entered media, because you, the people you associate with are people that come under attacks. And I, I would guess this happened for you. Were you, did you 
have a fraternal practices? Do you have men's clubs? Or I know that the uh, Catholics have uh, the uh, Knights of Columbus. I don't know if Orthodox has anything like that. but Or even just groups of Chad men that helped you in those times when you were under attack. Because you have, no, you don't, nothing like that? No. Right. <laughs> like but you that. are, you do take as a traditional uh, Orthodox, you, uh, male leadership in, a, in the family, seriously, and that sort of thing, right? I imagine oh, that's sure, an important yeah. part Absolutely. of your life, right? So you are in tradition, nested in traditional. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying that there was never any support network of, uh, right. of strong men or anything like that. Uh, however, I mean, at the same time, even though I didn't really have a, a, a network of that, I mean, I, I do live in the Bible Belt, which uh, has at least the skeletal remains of some of these basic principles of masculinity and family and and, and that kind of stuff. So th- there's pros and cons. I mean, that's quickly eroding. But, uh, you know, my, my my whole approach never really had any kind of a support network. It was always pretty much just uh, kind of weeding through the information kind of on my own. Uh, I'm not an atomistic individualist, you know, classical liberal, but, um, you know, in the modern world, we're all kind of in that uh, situation. Where we're trying to find uh, tradition. We're trying to find culture. We're trying to find heritage that's authentic. I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to orthodoxy uh, and traditional Catholicism. I was drawn to track Catholicism in my 20s. I then later moved to orthodoxy. But, um, yeah, that's because th- we are lacking that uh, archetypal, masculine, patriarchal, image in society that would be there occupied by god the father but when you have this feminization of the culture that displaces that masculine archetype and and quite intentionally in fact they do they do that on purpose to destroy the archetype of of paternalism uh to invert and destroy society i mean we call it on the e-right we call it the long house which is like uh, the long house is essentially removing any heroic masculine spirit right so we're all thinking about ways to have a wall something that's wall that allows for uh, that makes makes it possible uh, in families because a lot of people are also talking about how do, you got a lot of trad young men that are going into marriages but they also want to be heroic at the same t- time right because you have been quite heroic in the sense that you stood out you've done something that would bring you under attack I mean, have you you've come under attack at least by orthodox people um that's oh, true, well, I mean, right? we've, not yeah, orthodox we've had, people. Sorry, the our... bad part of the, the liberal part of the orthodox have a, have attacked you. Yeah, that's more recent. Um, yeah. it happened when I first became orthodox as well. Uh, but no, I mean, we've had kind of the standard, um, you know, deplatforming. My website was deleted in 2018. All my writings and essays. Um, we had the demonetization in 2019. Um, you know, so all the typical uh, social media bans and deplatformings. We, we've had all that. Um. And then, yeah, more recently, we've had the, uh, you know, um, pro, you know, globalist elements of uh, the so-called Orthodox community, you know. Yeah, we call it the guy. Making, gyne- the, making the same move. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we've had that. that. It's like the the longhouse immune response or the gynocentric immune response when it sees someone acting out heroically in the public sphere. Like for Gavin McInnes, he's a bit of a Voldemort to mention his name, but they came after him. They tried to get his wife to divorce him or her liberal friends, right? And he sort of built a network of people after that because he was in the liberal world and then built network into sort of trad Catholic network of people, right? So built his own court, I suppose you could call it. So that seems like a method to do that, but... um yeah, and we're, we're pretty well. I think we're pretty well insulated in the sense of, uh, you know, we have we do have a good support network in terms of our church connections. I mean, I think we're pretty well established within 
um, you know, significant sections of orthodoxy that aren't that way, that there's not really anything that those other people can do other than uh, kind of public, just try to damage a person's reputation. And all they ever have on me is that I'm just mean or something like that. And it's like, uh, you know, really, this is just, I mean, maybe I am too mean at times and I just don't know that's possible, but I really, I really feel more and more like there's just this passive aggressive soy beta prevalence in men out there that anytime they see somebody taking a stand, anytime they see somebody debating with a lot of heat or energy, that is something that they feel is, you know, evil or scary or something like that. When that's just, that's just men, dude. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, that, again, it's the gynocentric. It's the exactly. Uh, it's the not wanting their position to come under a, a attack anymore, but also not wanting any forward momentum. Right? That's the lot. That is Longhouse incarnate in the institutions. Right. And another thing, though, is interesting is that I found about orthodox orthodoxy in general is that this is they're so good at the folk element of it. In my community, they're the most enthusiastic about their people's folk culture. Right. For you, I don't know how if this is an operation in America, but for me, in America, the Anglo-Saxonness of, of Americans, they actually saved a lot of the folk tradition in Appalachia. That's such a strong part, that folk tradition, and they rescued it. And we were able to copy all their oral tradition uh, to bring it back to England. And essentially, I find in America that people almost on the conservative side are afraid to say Anglo-Saxon. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene came out saying, uh, oh, Anglo-Saxon tradition. And I mean it as a soul, right? I mean it as a uh, a cultural folk soul. I'm not talking about genetics or whatever. You, you know, that's part of it. But people are afraid to say it when that's all the founding fathers were uh, English, right? They called themselves Englishmen before it all happened. So is this a part of the Orthodox Church in America? Do you participate in any folk elements at all is that a part of your life i don't know what what manner of name uh dyer is but yeah it's it it is a big thing of orthodoxy in other at least european countries i just don't know if it walks up to the church and it seems like we need that because a lot of people talk about as a bridge as a bridge yeah i don't know if that's a part of your life at all americana you could well, call it americana different because yeah, yeah it's different here obviously because you know orthodoxy is fairly new so a lot of the people that you meet for example throughout the bible belt they're not typically people that have uh, been cradle Orthodox. They're almost always probably 80 to 90% converts. So it's people coming out of Catholic and Protestant churches coming into Orthodoxy. <clears throat> um, and usually uh, if you, you know, are, are looking for something that's on average, not always the case, but on average, more conservative, you're going to be tending towards ironically uh, ethnic parishes like Serbian or, or Russian Orthodox. So, you know, in our case, we have an all um, English parish that, uh, well, I, I, I attend two different parishes, one that's mainly Russian um, and then one that's mainly English and, and almost all converts. Um, so in both of those cases, there's not a lot of indigenous American tradition there in the South, though, there is a degree of the maintenance of these kinds of folk traditions, I guess you could say, with country music, um, you know, that's. I live outside Nashville and Nashville is kind of the, the heart of country music, but even that is a, uh, you know, Nashville and, and the country scene and all that, that's, I'm not a huge country person or anything like that, but it's kind of undergoing an evolution and a change right now. They've really been turning it into a blended uh, pop rap country mix thing for the last 20 years. So even that is kind of um, going away to a degree, but Outside of, you know, the metropolitan areas, there's quite a bit of the, the maintenance, I guess you could say, of, of local Anglo-Saxon, uh, Anglo-Saxon traditions and, and, and uh, 
idiosyncrasies. But America is very different just because, as I'm sure you know, it's like America's really uh, different countries in one. So if you're in California or New York, uh, I mean, it's like a different country from Tennessee. You know what I mean? It's like a whole other uh, uh, idea, atmosphere. And what they're really trying to do is push a lot of uh, other groups into (laughs) the Midwest and the South. And they're doing that on purpose because, Mm. you know, it's all part of an overall uh, geopolitical realignment strategy. Um, But yeah, so that's, that's, that's all I could say to that. I mean, it'd be nice if we had more uh, indigenous, uh, you know, folk tales and, but we, yeah. I feel we have to look, we have to look at it because it's a big part of the ground of who a people are. I do, I believe personally, I've lived in America at least for a while in the coastal cities though. And I, but I knew a lot of people because I was in conservative circles that were from where you're from, that are from those areas. And, and you know, I said, these are just Anglo-Saxon guys, right? Even if they've been pulled away from their ground. But I think we need to look for the ground now because the ground is where the essence comes from, right? That's okay. The essence of a people is important. It's a pot. There's an angel of England. Uh, there's an angel of this that it, that's, that goes into the hierarchy as, um, um, C.S. Lewis said is that every, every people has its fulfillment. He said, for England, it's Avalon. And uh, I think if you're going to look for the ground and find the place that you want to be anchored to, it's the church, but it's also the thing that sits in between that, right? It's part of your identity. And people need to really look into that more now rather than just accepting, okay, we're this multicultural, yeah, okay, but you know, you've still got a great swath of the people that are of that, which is what I think is the heart of America. The trouble is, obviously, I'm fighting an uphill battle when I talk to people about that. But a lot of Virginians that I know that are my followers agree with me. They're like, yes, 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 this is, this is correct. We, we, we support that. Um, yeah, but it's, for other places, it's fighting a bit of an uphill battle because mm-hmm. people have ideas of pan-Europeanness when they think about America. And of course, the revolution is important as the mythos to a lot of people as well. But yeah, so sorry. Go. You're about to say something. No, I just. I mean, it's a great point. I, you know, it's just the problems are so uh, massive and and interrelated. It's really hard to see what the right pathway is uh, out of this dilemma. I mean, I kind of feel like this the, the situation where what they're trying to push with globalization is so unnatural and so foreign that maybe it'll just collapse in the next five or 10 years. Um, I mean, that's my hope, you know, without there being some giant war, some economic engineered collapse that, you know, Klaus and everybody talks about, you know, my hope is that the the globalization project will just kind of eat itself and fall apart. uh, And then maybe we can return to some form of normalcy somehow. Well, they're they're putting people where they don't belong, essentially, right? Is that, Again, that's back to C.S. Lewis. Is that that okay? That people has their fulfill- fulfillment there. They can be part of the overarching Christian Christianity, but they've got their fulfillment. They don't necessarily belong here, right? Yeah, it's you would think that you would think that would be common sense, but and they and they're doing that <laughs> right. But they're doing but that as part of a bad. It's a strategy, right? Let's that's right. They want to divide. Yeah. Well, cause then you don't have a certain energy because we we appeal to these commonalities to uh, to. I mean, we have a common value hierarchy for a certain place we are, right? So if I appeal to you and appeal to that value hierarchy, you'll come to my cause. If you have a million different cultures and I appeal to you, how, I don't, can't get all these people on my side. I've got a million different things I need to unite. So therefore the elite or the transnational capital, it's easy for them to rule in that way. I suppose that's the motive. 
Yeah, it's a disintegration strategy. It's uh, written about in military documents. There's a whole book by Kelly Greenhill on it. I mean, it's well known. It's like Army War, Stanford uh, Army War College uh, book, uh, Weapons of Mass, you know what. Uh, But, you know, if you talk about that, uh, you're, you're a bad person. So even though it's a public, it's a public military strategy, if you talk about it, you're a bad person. Yeah. On just moving uh, to a different subject or back to the orthodoxy and and the meaning crisis, I suppose, as well. What I found so unique about I haven't um, been baptized. I'm Church of England. I haven't been baptized into orthodoxy, so I don't want to talk about the theology particularly. Um, but I am very interested in metaphysics. I'm you know, philosophically I have a lot of uh, understanding of that area. What I found so interesting, I find so interesting about an orthodox church is that it appears to be almost the reverse on of uh, on ontological layers right is that you go to the four chamber and you uh pay your respects to the the different uh different portraits like icons you put your candle there and light it that's kind of like letting go of your inner worldly concerns right it's a briefing to to shed away because that's Mm -hmm. the and that's the first layer we have is that we're obsessed with our inner worldly concerns our goals right as heidegger would talk about that is it's the we've got the inauthenticity that's the first thing and we're trying to get to authentic being. And so you go in, when you go into church, you shed that first thing when you go in. And then when, and of course, you, the ceremony and all the, the, sim, the symbolism is breaking further in to unlock and open yourself to authentic being, to true being, right? And then to, you know, so I, is there something particular that orthodoxy has that perhaps the Catholic ceremony doesn't have? Because I heard a person recently on our side of things talking about this. He's saying that all the priors of the Catholic church it was so obvious to him that this was the right true and christ was all this right he accepted that 100 percent, but he'd only had a few transcended experiences right and i thought perhaps that was part of the problem is that does the orthodoxy give you more ontological access to the transcendent of god is, and why what is it about that because you you've mentioned that sort of occasionally you've talked about that, that that the holy spirit is more opened or accessible in this pr- yeah ritual well procedure. the first reason for that is uh in in the orthodox view obviously orthodoxy right believing right so for us um orthopraxy and orthodoxy go together you can't have one without the other so the law of praying is the law of believing and also the law of believing leads to the law of praying correctly so the reason for that is that you can't really have church without dogma. Um, you know, certainly we can have um, Pharisees and people who go crazy over minutia, but that doesn't, that extreme doesn't mean that we can't uh, set delineators and, and set boundaries for doctrines. And the doctrines are necessary because they help to warn us and sort of stave off the errors that it's not so much just that heresies are like, you know, uh, focusing on uh, minutia or, or splitting hairs. The problem is that heresies are a way to divide and conquer ideologically the church. So just like we were talking about with um, people groups, you can disintegrate and sort of uh, deracinate and, re- and reduce the cohesion of a society. through a lot of different techniques, including uh, moving other populations in. Same way you can do this ideologically through ideological warfare. We see that in, in, you know, what I was mentioning earlier with the army warfare manual. You can do the same thing with theology. And so heresies, uh, also have 
the, the potentiality to divide and destroy the church. And they've done that many times in history. Now, we don't think that the church itself ultimately gets divided. If, if there are people that leave, then they leave, they split off. But the church continues on as long as there's Orthodox bishops transmitting the true faith. There's always going to be the church there, even when it's reduced, say, in the Arian crisis of the fourth century down to a handful of bishops. Those were the true bishops with, you know, St. Athanasius and others. We have the same thing manifesting uh, at the time of the iconoclasm crisis when you have majority of the uh, the secular bishops and the uh, emperor pushing this heresy, which is very uh, close to Islam in terms of its theology, iconoclasm, as well as Neoplatonism. And then it eventually loses uh, and doesn't win out. So there's a lot of there's a lot of time periods when we can have heresies that almost take over the church. And what heresy does is it really removes the power of the the authentic that you're talking about um, by replacing it with what Saint Gregory Palamas calls an ide- uh, ideology, a kind of an ideological error that isn't the real thing. Right. So, so it the, kind the, of, con- the concepts are covering over and uh, stopping you from connecting to truth i suppose is a way of talking about it uh, is, so is it yeah, the, do- like the dogma it's, it's, is what disconnects the dogma rather than wrong ritual so it's the no, ideological incorrect go, dogma go together oh, okay, right. they go together so for example let's take the roman catholic church for example in the orthodox vantage point the roman catholic church really began to depart theologically in the uh, early middle ages and into the Gregorian reforms and then into the, the papal Renaissance. So from that time period, about 900 to about 1300 is when you had a, a very, very marked public alteration in how the Latin Western church operated. And even modern uh, Roman Catholic theologians and historians now admit this. You have the books like 900 years together, uh, by Congar and others. Um, and wh- what that means is that the church underwent a revolution, especially during the, the 11th century or the Gregorian reforms, that changes both orthodoxy, both the theology and the liturgical praxis. And even though that wasn't as evident at the time, you could begin to see it with the Renaissance artwork that formerly would have been forbidden via the Seventh Council in terms of iconography, right? So there's a reason for us, we're not just being picky over artwork, why you, you can't use you know, giant naked fat atoms and, and giant naked eaves with snakes crawling up her leg, trying to hump her like we see in the Vatican, because it's a violation of the um, notion of the liturgy as heaven on earth. And that's all pagan art, which is imported into the church. And I'm just saying it, it evidences a vast liturgical change in the 12, 1300s, 1400s in the West that really comes to fruition by the time of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, where, and with now with Francis, you have the outright banning of the traditional Latin Mass, which was the maintenance of that liturgical tradition that the West had, which is a huge part of social and even linguistic cohesion for societies, right? I mean, the Roman Empire, the, the Latin Mass was important because it was the language of the people's vernacular, Right. Um, and then it became kind of enshrined as the uh, the traditional Western Mass that underwent revolution, particularly at Vatican II, to openly Protestantize the liturgy, to turn it into something bare bones, scale down, get rid of all the grandeur, get rid of all the the beauty and the excess, to make it something very banal. And that was by design. And what I'm saying is that it's not just something that. Uh, Protestant-minded liturgists wanted to do, it's a manifestation of a long-standing revolutionary tradition within the Latin West that for all the uh, uh, 
critiques that we can make of the Orthodox Church, that never happened. There's no there's no liturgical revolution in Orthodoxy. It's the exact same liturgy that St. John Chrysostom did. And everybody knows that the Vatican II Mass is not the same thing as, you know, the traditional, quote, Roman rite. So that's what I'm saying is that uh, it's not either theology or liturgy or ritual. It's the revolution is both. Like, you'll see it reflected in both whenever there's a revolution in the church. I suppose the thing about Protestantism that has that propositional focus, or almost you could say an obsession with abstracted, uh, abstract, yeah, pulling things out of their context, um, and 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 really worshiping the proposition itself. Whereas, absolutely, obviously, we've now we now know that 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 is not the only form of knowledge, you know, perspectival, procedural, all these other things that we overlooked uh, in the Enlightenment. But with the symbols changing the the ritual and that sort of thing. I suppose you could say that it's not, they're no longer aligned with reality. So you can't use them or use the bit utilitarian, but they can't be used to mediate the truth, right? If you... Exactly. Well said. Yeah, I, I rambled a lot and you said what I, <laughs> what I was trying to say. <laughs> well, that was like just one, one portion of what you said, which is great. You gave the historical background. So, but yeah, that, that's important that's though, what because what we try to do on my channel is where, where we look into the ancient, uh, Ceremonies of the king, right? And these are Christian ceremonies as well. And yeah, we've forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Coronation, and our, yeah. And we've forgotten, and we're about to have one, which I'll be interpreting symbolically, uh, the, the, how to use these actual symbols to mediate the true, true function of the king, his way, how he's supposed to act, which I call the, which is called, I call the over king, essentially, England's angel, is that Charles is not king. All his agenda, he's supposed to align with this, which is under Christ, essentially. It's you. You are to align with that, not to be a perennialist to do any of this. Use yeah. the sacred symbols of England to mediate. If you have the proper symbolic worldview, to mediate how you are to act. The spurs of St George. Okay, what does a spur do? It's something. Okay, it sits on top of a horse, and you use. Oh, how do I mount a? Oh, the horse is the military, right? You understand that you're supposed to use the and the it's called St George's spurs. You're supposed to use the virtues of St George to aim and guide the body of the horse, which is the horse, right? It's underneath the spirit to aim and guide it, right? So you're not supposed to use some other religion or to do something else like this. So on that subject, how do you feel about what the, um, you just posted about this? It's connected to perennialism, this idea of the Catholic church suddenly releasing this, um, all faiths together. Let's come and pray to whatever it was that you recently posted. I mean, there's one, there's one truth, right? There's one, at least, loyalty to your people and then above that the truth how do you feel about that maybe you can expand on your thoughts of what the church just did you know what i'm talking about right yeah absolutely yeah so first point is that you're right i mean the orthodox view there's orthodox england right there's england that has a traditional uh orthodoxy laying underneath all these caked up layers of of uh error and mistake and papism and protestantism and all that calvinism and and so there, there is this uh, traditional England that's kind of situated underneath all of that uh, uh, overlay. And you'll find that in the ancient symbology and in the ancient, uh, you know, imagery of England, like you said, with St. George and the, and the idea of the coronation service, which is actually an Orthodox service. It's a semi-sacramental service because in Orthodoxy, the king is an icon of God, right? And he rules, according to Romans 13, as a diakonos. So he has a quasi-diaconate deacon role in orthodoxy. That's what it's supposed to be. Now, the whole Western world and now the modern world has labored under the last, uh, you know, three, 400 years of revolutions and revolutionary ideology to bring in democratic republics 
Democratic republics were always intentionally, um, at least in the last 400 years, there to undermine and destroy, throne and altar. And it's amazing to me how many people uh, are afraid to talk about this, won't admit this, when it's just patently obvious to anyone who believes the history of the church, believes what's in the Bible, um, and doesn't think that the goal is to mesh Christianity with classical liberalism. So, and I'm I'm happy to to mention nuance. I'm happy to say that the Latin excesses of the you know Renaissance period and the Borgias and all of that led to the Enlightenment reaction. Yeah, I'll admit all that, but that doesn't mean that uh, you know Adam Smith and these these characters are like the height of uh, of civilization and that, and that we should bend our theology to Adam Smith. It just but it doesn't make any sense. It's totally foreign to um, the whole Orthodox ethos. And the whole idea of the you know Byzantine ethos of the double-headed eagle. I mean, double-headed eagle symbolizes this very point. There's one body of the people, and it has two heads because there's a spiritual authority and there's a temporal authority. So it's it's really kind of common sense. It's not that crazy. The church has always done coronation ceremonies. The church has doesn't have any saints that have promoted any democratic or republican governments. There's never been an Orthodox saint touting or favoring those forms of government there are countless saints and warrior saints who were kings and who talked about the goodness of monarchy and most recently saint john of cronstadt's whole famous thing on monarchy so i think this is just the most natural form of government to a people it's the it's the only form of government that the church has a a semi-sacramental service for a coronation ceremony so that's what we should shoot for although i don't believe that that you know state uh, geopolitical goals should be the number one focus of the church. Number one focus should be uh, the altar and the the theology. Then flows the other things like the the state, right? Because the spiritual component of man is is primary, and then the bodily components, which would be you know the state, you know the spirit is corresponding to the church, the body corresponding to the temporal power of the state. Um, there is a folk spiritual element too, though, that's underneath that spiritual element in the hierarchy. That's not just the body, right? Because an angel, the angel of England, and you know, as Pajot would talk about, that's not a body, but it's just down in the hierarchy. It's underneath Christianity, so it's not just a body. It's because there is a folk emergence, right? Robin Hood is a real archetypal spirit. Uh, is, is a real what do you, would you call it? A hyper agency, which all the cognitive scientists are talking about at the moment. As you know, Arthur, these are things that are related to. Because if you say it's the state, that means that we can't we can't go to our look to our anchor and say no, where this this demos this people you're this this overarching elite state that isn't of us, right? If you just take it as no, no, let me be more clear. Yeah, so I I fully recognize the reality of you know angelic um, structures and 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 hierarchy, the nine choirs and all that that exist and and that rule over different nations. The Book of Daniel talks about that very clearly. I wasn't. Uh, I was just being more gen- general and just talking about the principle of a twofold authority of church and state working in symphonia. To be more precise, of course, yes. In, in various cultures, we would have uh, a balance of the one and the many. For example, the Byzantine ideal is not that you destroy the uh, local people's um, rulership or uh, ethnos via the imperium. The imperium is supposed to be a balance of the one and the many. That's the ideal here. And so sometimes, for example, in the case of the fall of Byzantium, uh, there's a great deal of Greek nationalism that contributed to the collapse of Byzantium. So in that case, I would say that that's a falling over into uh, ethnophilotism and an over-excessive pride 
in one's nationalism that destroys the um, imperial cohesion of the faith. However, uh, there's the opposite extreme, which is now where we are in today's world, which is, no, 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 now you have to be uh, merged into the global blob and you have to not have any local appreciation or uh, any, um, you know, the many is sacrificed for the one. And so that's, that's bad. That's an opposite extreme. So, uh, yeah, to be more precise, I, I agree. I was just trying to be. Oh, no, I don't of, mean to. You know. I didn't interrupt to sort of contradict you or anything. I only d- mentioned it because a mode of attack on, on Orthodox Christianity for a lot of people on the right that are coming to, coming to Christianity is, oh, it's universalists. They, they don't like nationalism or any of this. No, no, no all the Orthodox it's the second saints, place in no, the hierarchy. No, no, no. It's the second yeah, place in the hierarchy. False. It's high. It's under God, you know. Right. But I just wanted to make that distinction. Yes, I agree people, with that. Yeah. You're right. Uh, so uh, Father Dimitris Daniloy has great comments on Orthodox uh, nationalism. Uh, St. John Maximovich, great comments on Orthodox nationalism. Many, many Orthodox saints speak this way. St. John of Kronstadt, uh, uh, you know, Metropolitan Philaret, that many of them speak this way. And so that's just propaganda to push uh, the, the present day uh, globalization imperium which is intended on destroying uh, the individual. And and this is by design. You can read, uh, you know, Count Kudenhoff Kalergi, who says that the purpose of this broader globalization, uh, Europe, pan-Europeanism, all this kind of stuff, is to destroy the existing uh, local cultures. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, that's really important because that is, it even goes on, on internally on our side, right? There's different principalities of, uh, you know, the, the Nietzscheans, on our side that uh, attack this sort of thing there's you know pagans as well um that uh that use that it's just not true so it's really important to well one one point i would say to this is a really good book and this is uh i I don't recommend everything from this author but um philip sherard has a really great book on the philosophical and metaphysical principles behind the orthodox east and the direction that it went and the latin west and the direction that it that it went in the second millennium uh, of, of europe and the the thesis is basically that when you have an imbalance in the trinity which for us the triad it's not just a philosophical concept it's obviously a personal god but it also does occupy a kind of uh metaphysical grounding position where you have a balance of equal of an equal ultimacy between unity and triad, the, the triad or multiplicity, right? So if there's a balance between the one and the many, uh, uh, Sherard argues, then this really forms a basis for the balance of the one and the many in the church. And you don't fall over into this papal system or fall over the opposite extreme of this Protestant system where it's the extreme of the many over against the one or the one over against the many. There's supposed to be this balance and that's triadic. And then that also filters down into the society as a whole where you have a, a balance of the one and the many and that that was kind of the ideal of the uh, the Byzantine Imperium is to have the individual nation states and their kings in this sort of uh, broader union. That's the idea. And yeah, I'll just let you grab that book there. You're about to bring it. Great up. book. There it is. I, I highly there it recommend is. this. Really, really good book on this topic. On on talking about that, it, uh, going in, into ontology there, sort of. So for you, the way the world worlds, the way the modernist world frame seeps in it's always seeping in so when you leave your ceremony in the church the disvalue of of the will to power that isn't everything else right or the world frame of so many other people and all the technology the utilitarian where all these people 
what do you, what practices or what do you do to protect this gold within once you leave the ceremony of the church, right? This, you know, sense connection to true being, because that's what the practices are for. They continuously connect you with the transcendent. What do you yeah. do to resist this modernist frame? Because it does bite back in. You get a connection to, to, or you cut through, through the inauthentic to being, and then it, it drifts back in, right? We get con- into the inner worldly concerns or that's not how the world used to be, of course. It's how, our forceptions are all framed. You could even connect them to sort of uh, Kantian-ness is still in all that. That enlightenment has made, this is how our world looks, right? That seeps in. For you, how do you protect yourself from that seeping in to, I don't know, protect the gold within? Well, I'll be honest with you. This is probably the hardest part of, you know, the Christian life is the um, consistent practicing of, you know, the the fasts, the, the ceremonies, um, and just being faithful to our prayer rule, being faithful to reading scripture, because I find that for me, the, the and maybe it's just because I, from a Protestant background, but, uh, I mean, the, the thing that helps me the most other than attending the liturgy and receiving communion is, uh, reading scriptures, honestly, because every time I read the scriptures, I'm always reminded of how foolish the, the opera, the, the way the world operates is. And then when I, when I read scripture and I'm coming in contact with divine revelation, it's sort of just constantly sort of reorienting me for, for me, that's the best thing outside of the liturgy itself that has helped, uh, sort of stave off that influence of, of the world. But it also like the crazier things get, the more degenerate things get, that also helps too, because it's like, well, what am I going to do? Like, if, so if I'm not in this, like, what am I going to align with this? I mean, this is just madness. And so it's like, like I'm going to become a purple haired people eater person. No, I mean, that's just, that's just madness and self-destruction. I don't have the will to self-destruct. Um, so yeah, that's a great question. I think that, yeah, the, the, the daily prayer rule, uh, which I often fail at, um, and then, you know, the, the practice of the, the virtues of the church, the like, giving to charity, um, you know, almsgiving, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, those, those are the, the key ways that I think keep us from falling into the passions and being ruled by our passions. And that's, you know, and we all have our own vices, you know, from, you know, thinking about beautiful women, like that's the main vice, for me. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the vice for me. So, um, you know, I have to constantly kind of protect and try to not put myself in those kinds of situations as best I can. Um, not that I've cheated on Jamie, but you know, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? It's more, more so like thought process and this kind of stuff. So, uh, because now like every chick dresses like, you know, yeah. they're all wearing yoga pants. They're all shaking their butts everywhere. That's it's like, right. and to be you know towards, I mean? even to, uh, even to have it present in mind is that's you being toward that. So it's not just the fact that you're not doing it. It's being toward it. Cause when you start going down that path of, of how, ha- of having that present, this idea of do it, the temptation that you might hold that in mind too long right so that's where yeah, practices yeah, exactly. like the uh, jesus prayer for instance is something that clears the mind of that sort of thing or you know, it does people... work too uh, the, the jesus prayer does work uh, i'm not always faithful in doing it but i mean uh, i have noticed that you know that's one of the best things you know that kind of refocuses uh you know when our, when our attention is distracted from what really matters and um you know, there's other things too. Like we know we do a lot of geopolitical analysis, movie analysis, and a lot, even those things can kind of be distractions for me. I can get really into these geopolitical texts and, you know, breaking down movies or whatever, and, you know, kind of making that into another kind of idol. But yeah, I mean, th- those are, uh, those are things that have helped me, but I'm also, I always tell people too, like, I'm not anybody's spiritual guide. I know you weren't asking for spiritual guidance, but cause I get criticized about that a lot. Like, Oh, you know, who are you to say that? Well, I mean, I just, present myself as a person who does philosophy and analysis. I don't take myself that seriously, 
we do a lot of goofy stuff. So that's it. I see myself as that's what. Kind of well, that's what point. we're here for. We're speaking to Jay Dye, the philosopher and the comedian, you know, comedian, right? And so, and that, and I, I wanted to ask you on that matter is is about your you know morning routines, right? Because people admire you for this reason, not for as a spiritual father, but you know, people admire you for what you do. And they want to know, okay, well, what, what do you do? What do you, what's your morning routine look like? What gives you vitality? What other than Christian practices, perhaps there's a lot of things you read. Perhaps it might be some verse or something or some sort of practice could even be something completely simple, dude. It could be because you might think this is trivial. Some things you do in the morning, but you have a sort of routine you go through and people are looking for the simplest things to re-engage with whatever they're doing or to. Yeah, that's a great question. I find that, uh, for me, uh, I'm really awake and creative first thing in the morning. Uh, so I usually focus and uh, do my reading time first thing in the morning or really late at night. I'm, mm. I'm a sort of an, in the middle of the day, I'm not very good at anything. So I apologize that I'm probably giving you a garbage interview because it's the middle That's of the day. Crazy. But, <laughs> but if, if, it, if it was like, you know, when I first woke up or like, you know, one in the morning, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a night owl. Uh, so I do like to do a lot of really intense reading, deep reading for, you know, deep hours into the night. But, uh, at the same time, I do a lot of reading in the day as well, just because I seem to be a little more alert and, and more so creative at that time. So, uh, what I typically do is just, I drink a lot of espresso mm. and I read a lot, take a lot of notes. Um, everybody's always laughing at the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> insanity with all of the, <laughs> yeah. the, yeah. these, right. Because they all have these. And everybody thinks that there's some kind of structure to it. It's like, oh, you must have some vast worked out network of color coded, uh, and, and no, it's like, it's just, it's just sticky notes. And my method for, uh, this that works the best for me, cause I'm more of a visual, visual person is, uh, I have a pretty good recall because of the fact that I like to be tactile and underlining what I'm reading. And then I, if it's an important page, what I do is I put a sticky note and then I summarize what's on that page. That's the, yes. that's the system that just works for me. I've done it for 20 plus years. And I really would, I would heartily recommend that to everyone. Well, I do a similar sort of thing. Uh, I don't do the un online, but I have these large index cards. And so I just do an hour of yeah. reading and I just summarize that. And then you go, Excellent. you do it, you do an oratory or an interview and you can just recall it. Exactly. And you can just read out what it really, really works. The summary method. It's, I think they used it at Yale back in the day. Uh, it's oh, a really, uh, really, there's a reason why it's used. And I just keep these, the car, I keep all the cars and I, every now and then I'll just spend a day and read through all of them and that refreshes the whole thing. And so yeah. you, you won't recall, you won't get to keep the knowledge of what you're reading if you don't do that. It'll just slip from your, your fingers. You might be able to remember it, uh, but not live. You won't be able to recall it, but this seems to really work for it does. Yeah. Also, I think, um, because a lot of the books that I read nowadays, I lecture through that also helps with, uh, you know, re retaining the content because not only am I tact doing a tactile thing of like underlining after I've read it, which makes me basically read it again. Then I'm also summarizing. Then I'm also lecturing on that summary, uh, in an, in an audio video, video, uh, video format. And then, uh, I've done the same thing as you mentioned, just because in the last few years, we do so many more uh, live public and audio and video presentations. I do have my, my note cards that summarize the global elite text and this kind of stuff. So that has helped too, because like you said, I mean, like I can't grab every book and, you know, summarize every book, but if I have my note cards, then that, that has helped. So that, that is a, a beneficial practice too. So. What, um, was that was that public speaking and that's that publicness that uh being a public person something you always wanted to do what was your inciting event that 
brought you into this that made you think this is my destiny? Because a lot of people are looking for what is their destiny, what helped them discover it and align with it. So maybe you can expand upon that when you first came I across think it. Two, two main things are necessary, which a lot of people have one of the two. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that's necessary is that for me, in my, in my situation, I uh, always enjoyed theater stuff. Uh, I was a big theater dude in uh, in high school. I wanted to go into acting. I just thought it was fun. Uh, I am heterosexual, so I was in the theater department, not as uh, you know, looking not looking for love, um, <laughs> but uh, I just thought it was fun. I mean, it was really just uh, you know playing parts, doing all that. We, we just thought it was a blast. But I, I enjoyed all the arts. Like I almost went to art school because I, I used to draw a lot. Um, so I kind of had to make make a decision at uh, you know when I was about eighteen, nineteen, whether I wanted to go the route of doing visual arts and drawing uh looked at going to memphis college of art thought about some other uh, art schools um and then or doing uh something more uh humanities philosophy related or uh trying to do you know theater and acting and stand-up so i I had a stand-up routine that i'd written back then that was my main interest when i was 18 or 19 then i kind of had a change of heart and decided i was more interested in uh the intellectual endeavors so for me, um, I knew I, I just kind of gave up on that. I didn't think I would be any sort of pu- a public person. I thought I would just be an academic and I was happy with that. Um, but I was naive when I was 19, 20 going into academia because I thought that, oh, well, if you're really good at, you know, writing papers and teaching, you'll, you'll rise to the top. I didn't know that it was this like huge, you know, occult, uh, degenerate clique of just madmen that run academia in the West. Uh, you know, so I found that out after many years, I continued throughout my twenties to, you know, stay in the uh, academia try to get, do graduate work and all that. Um, and I got to the very end of my master's and I was about to, to graduate and just had this huge falling out with, uh, the super liberal, um, department head and just walked out. And I was just like, I'm done. I don't care anymore. I, I academia is a joke. I think it's kind of like, it's paper tiger. Um, and it's an, it's a legacy system, just like, uh, you know, media's, uh, the old media is a legacy system. Right. Um, and we, we may go into something worse. I, I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, where we're going, but, um, I at least know that, uh, individuals, you know, like we did with this last few months by creating a whole philosophy course, people doing that, I think it's a much, uh, much, much better approach than, Okay, so you're going to pay, uh, what, $100,000 to go be brainwashed by these degenerates at a local university that are just the worst human beings imaginable? Uh, you're paying $100,000 for that? I mean, that's a ridiculous system, right? So, like, that alone should tell us that, like, it does, that doesn't make, that makes no sense, right? So, there's got to be something better to replace that, or we all just choose our own destruction. I mean, it's, we either come up with something better and we have common sense and wisdom and we create our own educational systems. Or we just self-destruct and the whole society collapses and then we'll go into something better either way. So uh, that's where we're at. That's fork, fork in the road. Anyway, but back to my situation. Um, no, I didn't think it was ever going to go anywhere other than academia. I left academia, got sick of it. Thought, I thought it was basically just a brainwashed cult, which it is. It's turned out to be. And by the way, when I was saying that in the 2000s, nobody, people thought I was, oh, no, you're the problem. You're the problem. Uh, how is academia now, everybody? Was I right or was I wrong? No, it's it's a giant, just beast, a monstrosity. So uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, you know, I'd, I'd rather uh, just do a, a regular job, you know, a, a regular Joe job, which I did throughout 
my undergrad years, I worked at a paint store. I was a paint mixer. I managed a paint store for 10 years. I could do that. I'm happy doing that. Um, and then, you know, just writing and blogging and doing this kind of stuff was for fun. And then just kind of snowballed. So I didn't think, I didn't think it would go anywhere. And then what happens is you're, so you write about movies, you get tired of that and you start talking about other things. Then people start noticing that they pick up on it. You know, we started doing debates in 2016 that got a lot of traction. I didn't think it would. We just sort of on a whim, like, Hey, you want to debate? Uh, so-and-so he's an atheist. Oh yeah, sure. We'll have this debate. And then that sort of snowballs into its own thing. And then it's like, Oh, do you have a book? Yeah. I, I got some essays. We could throw that into a book. Oh, and then that turns into a TV show. Oh, and then that turns into this. And then, so all these doors start opening up by just sort of churning out all this content and uh, I'm happy doing it, happy uh, doing uh, feel like it is what I, I guess what I was meant to do given my interest. So my two point, my thing that the two things that are nested, number one, uh, you should have a desire for it. Uh, if you don't have a desire for it, you're probably not going to be very happy um, because there's a lot of bullshit you have to deal with being a public person. Uh, you know, we got to the phase now where we get death threats and this kind of crazy stuff. So we're at that level. Uh, so I have to put, uh, you got, you got, you put like, uh, home security and all that stuff installed now. Um, so that's all, you know, new, that's a new level of stuff. Uh, but there's, so there's pros and cons either way. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think you do need some kind of verifiable talent and result. So not just the desire to do it, which a lot of people have, and they don't have the, the drive and the consistency. Cause I, I get a lot of people, Oh, I want to do what you do. How do I do what you do? Well, uh, it's going to take you about 15 years. Yeah, so, exactly. so I've been here putting out this stuff <laughs> and then people get burned out after, you know, yeah. three months of podcasting and they're like, I don't see the results. It's like, well, it took yeah. me 10 years to get a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube. Yeah, so, you know, well, it's like you need, I, I always say to people, uh, because again, it's a 10 year thing. You need to have this obsessiveness. Well, I, well, I say you have to have this obsessiveness where you just want to master something. Yes. Just, you just want to be ultra competent in whatever you're doing, right? And a realism. Almost, I find that you need both a delusion and a realism. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Because you're projecting something, and people say, oh, you're not going to be able to do that. But then you also go, well, what, this is what genuine uh, will is, right? It's thinking, well, how could I do that if I did this, this, and this? Yes, that's possible. Because you're cons- that's what we do. We, we expand into the future. We, and that's kind of what seems to have happened to you. You expanded into it. You sort of started to roll into it. And you must have had a certain obsession to be competent at what you were doing. Uh, what I find about your essays uh, that you notice a distinct difference to academic uh, types is that they're strong. They're very strong in their view of things. That's probably a lot what they didn't like about, perhaps like about them because they try to tell you to be a bit more, have that objective voice. But no one wants that. You, you want clarity and truth, but at the same time, you want a certain energy or a value in it something that drives it forward that's what i found reading some of your philosophical essays anyway thanks yeah i think you're right about that i mean you know you're you're supposed to be more uh in academic writing it's it's striving for the same type of thing that you're striving for in so-called journalism which is neutrality and objectivity and i'm not saying there's not a place for that um but at a certain point it's just sort of like well, then what's the point of academia? I mean, is academia there to discover truth or is academia there just to sort of create this hamster wheel of people spinning out, you know, garbage theses about uh, transgenderism in Shakespeare, right? Non-binary theories of Christopher Columbus. I mean, literally, like that's what academia spits out now. And it's like, what is that? That's That's not even, that's like... 
I, I, I don't even know if I call it propaganda. It's like beyond that. It's like fantasy fan fiction for yeah, it's like o- it's total ultra meta, It's ultra meta semblance. It's, it's where you, when you, when your feedback loop starts at will to power, separates you so much from being, uh, obviously we originally are connected to authentic being, let's say when the Greeks first had it open to them. And we're now on the stage in the postmodern, we've just gone so far away from it. It's so fed back to itself. that It's just delusional semblance yeah. that sees things everywhere, right? It's almost going to reach a point where, you know, that's these are the monsters and the giants emerging, as Joe talks about. It's, it's a schizophrenic, yeah, uh, uh, like pseudo-superstitious religion where it's like uh, white cauliflower and milk are uh magical beings of races like it's a there's a magical racism i'm serious right i mean remember aoc was saying that cauliflower is racist and they were saying, oh if you use milk it's racist brown bag lunches are racist it's like this is weird just uh like you said postmodern idea that um you know of all people ironically terence mckenna in his book food of the gods he talks about how today's magical thinking is really closely parallel with postmodern thinking because postmodern's uh, postmodernism's idea that everything's a social construct basically the same thing as magical thinking that like my mind makes reality everything into what it is which is just preposterous right mm. yeah like, my mind doesn't make it you know, I, I don't make i don't identify like if i identify as bill cosby i'm not suddenly bill cosby right mm. and they of course all, all those postmodernists um Heidegger didn't like how they used him. He didn't mean it that way in the way he, he, he think that was sort of sacrilege of what he was talking about. There's limited truths. We never fully get to one, you know, one truth in terms of epistemologically having it. Um, but they use that to say that, well, okay, propagandistically that everything's relative, right? Rather than nesting it in tradition, at least. Um, because he put the good historically, but still he's nesting it in tradition um, and not saying that access can be or, or anything means anything and you can be anything. No, of course, there's limitations to that. So, yeah, it's really strange how that really got warped. His work got warped uh, later on or what, where, they, where, you know, Derrida and these people took it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that, I guess. You know, in my con- to, to be precise, in, in my conception, um, I wouldn't say that. You know, if Christ is the logos, if He is the the reasoning principle of reasoning principles, th- to say I've apprehended that does not equate to anything like, oh, I'm omniscient or I, I've attained mm. to total truth exactly in my limited capacity. But it is this sort of like participation. The Orthodoxy is very yes. much into a participatory view of metaphysics. I'm not saying you were saying this, but I think a lot of times that people hear about these kinds of philosophical concepts, they might presumably think, for example, we have a lot of criticism from some of these orthodox circles that say, oh, you're making orthodoxy very philosophical. You make it all about philosophy. If you listen to what we're saying, that's not actually what we're doing, because if if by that, if what you mean by that is that I am restricting orthodoxy to a purely conceptual intellectual yeah. schema, that is not what I'm arguing at all. Well, my, in fact, my view is that you participate in yes. true being via the liturgy and via these things. Yes. And that's a real uh, touching. That's a real ontological yes. participation. Yes. It's not yes. a purely abstract and conceptual thing. Well, because what we don't understand, and perhaps I try to say this as a disclaimer, I said that this is a descriptive proposition. That's all it will ever be, 
right? A description of, say, if you're talking about the ontology of a church or how it works or whatnot, that's, you don't have it by possessing the proposition. You don't have, you don't, yeah. so you have the perspective, and again, you could bring a bit of co- uh, cognitive science into it. It's perspectival knowledge, uh, procedural knowledge, participatory knowledge. These aren't things you can possess, uh, possess in the same way as a proposition. You have to enact it. It has to be enacted yeah, to have exactly. access. So, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that is a, you, you, I think some people are a bit inauthentic in their attacks. I think some people know that yeah. and they attack it because they, it's a, it's a, it's a region of attack where, whereas, yeah, it's, I think some people perhaps believe it when they attack you for that, but I think there's definitely a certain percentage of people that just try to take it out of, out of its true context. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a maliciousness. We, we had a, a 400 pound uh, philosophy boomer professor screaming at me the other day at a conference because in his mind, my citing of David Hume means that my goal is to bring skepticism into orthodoxy. And I'm just ma- baffled by this. Like, so you think that anytime I cite someone's argument, that means that I adopt wholesale their system, right? So if I, so if I cite an argument from Plato, then I'm a Platonist. If I cite an Aristotle, uh, an argument from Aristotle, that makes me an Aristotelian. This is just really um, low-level thinking from somebody who's, a, a, you know, supposed to be a professor. But then again, you know, maybe this is a person who's, uh, you know, malicious. I don't know, but there is a lot of misunderstanding out there, and I think a lot of it has to do with. There's, I guess, again, a lot of factors, but you know, education is very niche, very, uh, um, especially you know, graduate education is very uh, compartmentalized. So a lot of people will not know, you know, they hear things and then they do a sort of a word concept fallacy. Let's just take something like transcendental, right? Like that might refer to ancient Aristotelian philosophy in terms of transcendental categories that Aristotle talks about. It might refer to uh, a similar appropriation of that by Kant, which is all a, a mental thing, which is Kant's trans- transcendentals. It might refer to the American transcendentalist authors like Emerson yeah, and these yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might refer to David Lynch's transcendental meditation. <laughs> David Lynch's <laughs> transcendental meditation. Where I, you know, it maybe it's all. So when you hear yeah. a word, maybe th- not you, but people out there that, that do this. Like when you hear a word, maybe think about the context. Not just assume that all oh, those all mean the same thing, right? So very you know simple word concept policy basically well that is the that's the good thing about online education is that we can, you can tell people about this sort of thing and when you have your own audience you have this great thing that helps you resist that sort of stuff they can't put words in your mouth you, you yeah, can just use your point. social media go bang here's what that word means um and that's a big important point is that philosophers are changing meanings of words all the time right uh, like you mentioned kant where he's talking about the ascent the the the, the, the transcendental is the ascent it's not outside being. He's talking about yes. it lifting into and the thing there, right? Trying to get to the structure that builds. Well, the, uh, one last point that hits on something earlier, uh, and you asked that question, which I didn't really adequately answer, which was that what was kind of missing or what was lacking in uh, the Roman Catholic liturgical experience of the last few centuries or whatever. And I would say that this notion of participatory being, Okay, so Palamas, uh, when he has his debate with Barlium, and Barlium comes to represent the future Latin mindset, even though he was he was very Eastern as as a, a bishop, um, he essentially restates a lot of the Thomistic types of positions that the the Latin Church goes in that direction when it officially officially adopts Thomism and kind of restates a lot of the Thomistic uh, principles about about divine simplicity. 
Palamas's debate with Barlium centers around this notion of participation. At first, it's about uh, God and world, and then it shifts to the individual Christian's no, uh, uh, participation in grace by the liturgy, by the sacraments, by communion. And the debate is how, if God is an absolutely simple unit, do we as individuals have a real metaphysical ontological participation in God if there's no essence energy distinction? So that for me is the, there you go. That is why the Roman Catholic church essentially evolved its theology away uh, from this very crucial essence energy distinction. And that's how we participate according to Palma. So that's the answer. And is that reflected in the difference of ritual? Because the lay person yes. doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily need to know that uh, philosophy. But how is it different in the ritual? Well, again, I, uh, uh, you could say it's a philosophy, but it's, it's a philosophy of reality in the sense that the theology is that philosophy. The theology is that Christ became incarnate to deify his human nature so that when we participate in that human nature via the Eucharist, via the sacraments, we are being deified. And, and that, that's what they that, don't have, right? And correct. so the, the knowledge they of the layperson that get that, and that gives them a true connection to authentic yes. being and truth. And that's and the you know tra- transcendent. You have right? to experience uncreated energy. Yeah, that's only taught in the Orthodox Church consistently. In the Roman Catholic Church, it is an explicit doctrine of a created grace, a created reality. So for us, there's a wall of created that you're touching. You're not touching the uncreated, which is one of the Roman Catholics. No, that's for the that's the beatific vision. That's the afterlife. You only touch upon the uncreated in the afterlife. Everything in this life is a created uh, cause, a created effect of God. Excuse me, a created cause or a created effect, including the grace. And so, but I thought Roman Catholics were all about the real presence. I thought we're all about, you know, Christ is truly, really present transubstantiation in the Eucharist. Okay, well, God's an absolutely simple essence. There's no, it's not, he's not participable. So how is he participable? You can't have created God. Okay, so the grace that we participate in, which is the divine life, can't be created. It's an uncreated grace, according to John 17. Jesus says I, that he came to give us the grace that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. So that's an uncreated glory, not created glory. And uh, that's the simplest, in my view, explanation. That, I, know that's that's, I think you've really answered the question there. But importantly, because I think, again, I've seen some Catholics talk, and hope Catholics are watching this doing it angry or whatever, but some people have talked about that they're not having the transcendent experience that this you know breaking through where you have it's obviously an emotional thing it's awe. it's all those things i don't want to go too much into that because well francis is banning the latin mass and they've got uh clown masses so no you're not gonna have a transcendent experience in a clown mass yeah so that's a great way because you've gone into it's the lay person if it's the things the lay person needs to have as well it's not just the, the philosophical so okay no no it's actually in this that's what's holding off the connection where you're just getting semblance you're not having it open and i guess can can you speak to that actually uh, perspectively for you that's been the case from you're getting that perspectively where you weren't before when you were not orthodox what we're talking about the more the more the connection of the truth and all and all these things yeah i think that so we can all have knowledge of and degrees of experience of truth outside of the church sure so i'm not denying any uh real experiences to people outside the church i think that in orthodoxy that you you do notice there is this profoundness this profundity this reality of you begin to change uh you don't like a lot of the things that you like before now it's not 
all instantaneous because you're going to be dealing with stuff your whole life, right? Like you're going to be dealing with, you know, the same passions that you struggled with before you were converting and all that. But there is, there is a definite, um, power and reality that you do sense, you do experience, you do see, uh, there's a, a the warfare intensifies as well. I mean, you're going to have a lot more of the, in my view, dark spiritual attacks and experiences. Um, but also a lot more of the good and the real and the real. So that's been my experience. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm, but I'm not going to say that like, Oh, I like I, I had a dream and I fell asleep and you know, I, I saw Jesus and the angel. Well, that's, that's not what like, I meant. That's not what I meant. I right. just meant access to, whereas you sort of more cut off before in these other. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that's correct. Right. You. I would more... say the difference is that in the past it was very ideological. Right. It was all, it was all, it was highly intellectual. And then what happens with, in terms of orthodoxy is that you realize that my issues and my problems weren't primarily intellectual. It was things that I need to be healed from. So it's more like a hospital than a, than a, than a, a, a university. Right. So it's like I treated Christianity, not totally. I mean, I wanted to, you know, I'd prayer life, go, go to the Latin mass and all that in my twenties. But then you realize that in, in terms of orthodoxy, when you find a good spiritual father, it's much more about, um, I actually need to be healed from my own passions and vices. So it's more of like yeah. the church as a hospital versus church as a university. But also the way the world worlds to you is changing from, uh, all the different, the way the rituals performed, all this stuff and this whole way it's done is different right your perspective it's not just because you're talking about before it was all propositional dogma right you believed it you believed it but yeah it's sort of like there's 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 phases i get like so protestantism is super i was raised protestant it's very abstracted very intellectual it's a very much a religion of the book roman catholicism is different because it does have a lot of elements that it shares with orthodoxy because rome and orthodoxy have the first thousand years in common so it's more like in Roman Catholicism, it's like there's multiple systems that work in one system. And there's a little bit of orthodoxy there in the sense of like, um, focusing on, uh, you know, saints, focusing on communion, liturgy. Uh, so I mean, they do have a sacramental view that, that is not Protestantism, right? But it's also kind of mixed with a bunch of a, a mess in my view. And so it's sort of like stages or phases. And I'm not saying that, uh, Oh, we're the same church as Roman Catholics. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we share the first thousand years, whereas Protestants, we don't share that. We don't share much in common other than the book and maybe a few doctrines like the Trinity or the deed of Christ in common. That's about it. <laughs> like everything else is going to be pretty different. So, um, there's more in common, I guess you could say from a certain vantage point with Rome, which allows per- people to, you know, in ways have an easier transition maybe from traditional Catholicism to orthodoxy, but uh, Roman Catholicism is getting so kind of variegated nowadays, post-Vatican II and with Francis sort of shutting down the Latin mass and whatnot, that we're, we're starting to see, I think, even even more difficulty in terms of the commonalities with Rome, I think, in the coming, in the coming years. Well, this seeds actually into a question I forgot to ask earlier, is that what can we do, because I, I'm having a, the head of the, basically the, Polish, um, the Polish regime uh, conservatives that took over brought in their own people into the arts institutions, right? So they've newly taken over the conservative types. And so well, uh, that's what I'm going to ask her as well, is that she talked about the attacks that have come on her. What can we do if we happen to be able to take back an institution or to insulate our institutions? Because you're trying to do that with your channel. You're trying to stop stuff. What can we do 
to do that? What methods or tactics can we use to insulate and uh, stop them from being taken over by penetrations? That's a great question. Number one thing, especially what I seem to be having a really hard time conveying to a lot of people, is the power of big money and foundations and think tanks. And then even kind of adjacent to that is the intelligence apparatuses or apparatchiks that kind of are connected to this or adjacent to this power structure. Uh, I mean, when the big donors come along, when they get the, oh, we'll buy it, we'll build you a seminary, we'll build you these buildings, uh, uh, here's a million dollars, let's just put in our guy to be the head of your department. That's all intentionally to buy you off and steer you in a different direction. And it's all public, and they've been doing it for a long time. It's it's very evident, again, in the Wim Hof book, and in what I just lectured on two nights ago on my channel. Uh, number one, people need to know that that's how it works gigantic portions do not believe that that's how it works. They don't think that exists. They're still calling me a conspiracy theorist for talking about things that are in the public domain and have been public and known for years. So until we get over this educational knowledge hump, we're not going to be effective at staving off subversion. Now, I'm not any kind of expert in these areas of uh, you know counterintelligence or anything like that. I did do my grad work on psychological warfare, so I, know, I understand how subversion works. I'm not an intelligence agent, but I can tell you that these kinds of things are how the system runs, how the world really works. If we don't understand that and we, we keep playing patty cake and pretending that this doesn't go on, we're never going to stop these people because they are unscrupulous. And they will use any means at their disposal to destroy, subvert, and undermine. And the craziest part about it is that people like myself and others who speak up on this topic, we are the most attacked, the most uh, uh, subverted, the most uh, you know gone after for talking about these things that are public knowledge, public record. So it's sort of like either you decide if what I'm saying is the case, what we're saying, many others, not me, just me, or you decide that I'm a crackpot, a conspiracy theorist, and you have your, your institutions. So we're going to we're, we're gonna have to figure this out. We're going to have to grow up and be adults. Stop acting like freaking children. Stop acting like if you talk about geopolitics, you're crazy. Guess what? There are people who conspire. It's called espionage. It really exists in history. Okay, that's not a conspiracy theory. And they target your church. Every global elite, we lecture through 50 or 60 of these texts. Every one of these global elite, for the most part, talks about using and co-opting religious institutions. Uh, and in simple, small ways. Like people, There's Orthodox priests saying they're under surveillance. The, the FBI just said that they're, they're surveilling traditional Latin mass. Like it's not yeah. just on this big overarching scale. It's on the, the on the ground. They're what they're watching, you know. Well, the same people who are saying that the KGB took over the Russian church, which they did in large part in the Cold War, will turn around and say there's no such thing as conspiracies. And Jay's crazy for talking about. It. You just told me that the KGB conspired to take over your freaking churches. What are you talking about? And you don't think that the same regime that was that love Soviets and they love communism and they love socialism, the same people, the same foundations are targeting your churches now. <laughs> but you want to laugh and say, I'm a conspiracy. Theorist. Okay. Well then you'll just have the destruction and institutional capture of your heritage. 
And they are also, they're watching. I mean, they're watching you. They're not dumb. They're in 4chan. They're around. Not to, you don't want to get paranoid about these things, but they are around. They see, as soon as you get to a certain level of uh, notoriety or whatever, they know what you're saying, what people are doing. But what I took from what you said there is sort of read their tactics, understand that, understand how it operates and you go into you have a lot of these great books and your streams you talk about them and they there's manuals where they, they go they do that the other thing i took was educate others in it talk about it right the, and then the other thing that came to me too was with what you were saying was who benefit think about who benefits don't just accept money uh easily right if like, someone's coming with money who, yeah. who knows where that money's coming from? That seems another no brainer, right? You would think that would be like kind of obvious, right? Like, well, why is this, uh, you know, zillionaire offering to build us uh, a new seminary or to build us a building? I mean, right? Who, who stands to gain here, right? So just not being so naive about stuff, right? I mean, we don't have to be uh, overly conspiratorial, paranoid people, but we also have to have discernment. And what I really see lacking out there is a lot of discernment, right? People just have no discernment. They just believe everything on face value. Um, especially a lot of clerics, priests, bishops, just taking everything at face value. Um, I mean, that's just childish and naive. The world doesn't work that way. And the, the it's other, more sophisticated than that. Yeah. And the other thing that I would add to all of that is that we need a distinct vision, not a conservative holding pattern, but how to do, how to have a direction. Perhaps we're going to make all, all buildings in the neo-Gothic style for the next 10 years. You know what I mean? Something specific to go in, a place, a place to go in, not, because if you're just in a holding pattern, you'll just, they'll get you to drift left, right? So you can have in, in the, informed by what exists. Say it's the Orthodox Church. Of course, informed completely by what is the truth or whatever. But you can have a vision that's something new, but not new in terms of the doctrines, but new in terms of the direction of what you're actually going to go do and make more uh, traditional and something, right? So I think a lot of people, you just get in this holding power, we're just going to try to conserve this. But no, what are we actually going to do to make it drift right? Let's drift right. Let's drift go over here. Let's make this institution go this way Have and have a place we're going, not just try to resist this. I think that's another key. Well, uh, I mean, we got people that are, uh, you know, public persons, supposedly well I don't even know what the Overton window is. They have no idea what that is. They've never heard of subversion, institutional capture. They don't know what false flags are. They don't, none of these things are in their mind or their repertoire, even though they're in the news every day, Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, so we're going to have to wise up and stop being childish, or we're just going to keep getting subverted and, and destroyed. Mm. And also, I, know, I was reading, I was reading Johan Ratu's book uh, on the Fabians and, and he, he, the, the analysis of the Fabians is that they have this subversive institutional capture model. And he says from his analysis of England and the right in England and, and why they were always so ineffective is that they would never talk about what was really going on and because they didn't want to appear to be conspiracy theorists. But if there's a real conspiracy to destroy your culture, then you got to be a conspiracy yes. theorist. Yes. And you've got to break down. They try to gatekeepers. That's another thing, too. And they they probably try to do it to you. At least what was what was so great about Alex Jones is he doesn't gatekeep. He'll just have people on. Right. So many on the right wing. They just oh, we're going to gatekeep to whatever's right wing to me. Right. On my side of things, we hate these people like Peterson. Uh, you don't have to give your opinion on him, but he gatekeeps. He's it's OK. It's just it's only this within this. I can't go any further right than that. I'm not going to speak to those people that are of that. Right. Uh, so that's a big problem. Also, 
I think people on our side of things are very hungry still for the New York Times bestseller list and still want Oscars. Those things are all corrupted. We need to really uh, evade or crush this, at least on our side, this desire for credentialism. Oh, he went to Harvard. No, destroy the credentialism. If you present your credentialism, we say no, go away. Like We're not going to rank you on that, or at least rank you on populism at least, or, or how good your channel is, or how competent you are. Um, and or build until we can build our own rewards, right? Uh, what do you think about that? And perhaps do no, we need to point. gatekeep yeah, there's, liberals there's, in a way? There's, there's still Sorry, this uh, uh, air of authority of the existing legacy systems. You know, just look at the last three years of medicine and just defaulting to the medical experts. And the irony is that most of these people in the last three years weren't even medical experts. They were bureaucrats at the UN, but they're experts. That's something that Quigley talked about would be engineered by a Burnham and the managerial society in the coming decades to get everybody to just default to this amorphous expert class. And they don't even have to be experts. It could just be called that. So all these things that you're talking about, Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize, these things, not always, but in many cases, those are part of this propaganda matrix to give the impression that these are the real authorities, these are the, the top men that are running things and they know what's going on. Uh, and that, that facade has to just keep continually collapsing. You're absolutely right. And do we need to, in a way, we'll, we'll obviously build our own. I'm hosting a essay competition on my channel at the moment, which has a cash prize and, and uh, other, other prizes retweeted by uh, Paul, Joseph Watson, stuff like that, trying to build in, trying to grow connections and that sort of thing. Do we need to gatekeep cer- certain people? I mean, that might be in a way, that's right? A, if you're, yeah, too, you're left wing, question. if you're full on left wing, like, see someone coming to the church, because they will do this. They'll come in yeah, and they'll try to infiltrate and, yep. and okay, oh, I'm right wing and I'm transgender, whatever. Oh, okay, we're going to allow this person now, are we? We're going we're gonna to bring that person that's into MAGA or whatever? Yeah, yeah. The, there's no easy answer to that because I think a lot of times, <clears throat> you know, it requires wisdom, um, not just knowledge, but kind of life, lived experience of kind of seeing... And giving people uh, my my personal approach now, I sort of uh, t- tightened up my circles of of who I will. Because if you do start getting an audience, you'll get all these people who are like nuts and trying to always message you, and then they want to get you to say something so they can public put it publicly. Or there's a lot of weirdos start coming in your 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 way. Um, so you're right; there has to be some kind of vetting that, that occurs. And I would say that you know maybe give people uh, a time uh, and see where they go because usually infiltrators and subverters, these kinds of people, for example, they don't consistently put out a good quality message, right? They pop up out of nowhere. Suddenly they're in everybody's circles. Suddenly they're getting a lot of media attention. Um, and then three months later, six months later, they're gone or they, they did their job of, uh, uh, you know, disrupting a movement, causing a bunch of chaos and drama. So I would just be hesitant to immediately, link up with, uh, you know, people in the, in, in this sphere, uh, again, not to be overly paranoid, but to be, have wisdom about, uh, who we associate with and give it time. That's my best example or, uh, advice for that. That's great, man. Well, that's a great place to win an excellent, I have to cut that. I watched a lot of, I mean, I've watched this stuff for 15 years, a lot of alternative media people, a lot of activist movements, and I've seen how provocateurs and these kind of people operate. Well, is there and, on that on that thing? Well, it's the last thing. Is there anything you want to expand on on that element of what you've learned and what, what we can learn from you? And because you, you're being approached by a lot of these people, so is there anything you might want to add to that and what you've learned from what's happened to you uh, on that area of that, subject? Again, you know, it's a little different if you 
kind of build a, 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 I don't have that large of an audience, but we have a decent audience. Um, if you build a, a decent size audience, I think you kind of have to put in new limitations and parameters for, you know, what you're doing. But if you're on the ground and you're doing activism or you're doing kind of uh, this kind of stuff, it's not as dangerous. Uh, but I think just, a, again, a little lived experience of um, how provocateurs operate. Uh, There's a great documentary, which you might be surprised because it's kind of a, a leftist documentary, but it's it's useful for understanding. I would say look up anything to do with COINTELPRO, look up anything to do with um, there's a great documentary from HBO called the Newberg sting. And even though that's about Islam, what you're going to learn from that documentary is the way that the feds were creating and co-opting and steering a radical Islamic movement in that case is just a model or a pattern for how they'll do it in any other case. Uh, great example. Of this is, uh, James Corbett's documentary on Timothy McVeigh. Uh, it's very, very instrumental in understanding sheep dipping and, and provocateurs, uh, great classic documentary. Hopefully, I think it's still available if you go to his website, I don't, they pulled it off of YouTube, but, um, you know, those are some things to, and then, you know, read, just read about COINTELPRO and how it operates. Cause even though that's a, somebody right wing goes, Oh, that was against the left. That was good. They're going to use the same tactics, dude. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that you have to be a leftist. I'm saying that the model of COINTELPRO is the model for how all groups are subverted. That's, that's something. Oh, great. Well, that's, that's excellent. Uh, thanks for sharing all that. Um, are you okay to uh, answer just some quick audience questions that I gathered from sure. the channel? And while no. I, gra while I grab them, maybe you could talk, did you do improv? Is that a practice you'd recommend? It seems like you did theatrical improv just based on what you do. You said you did some theater stuff. Would you recommend that to people just while I get these uh, questions? Uh, yeah, I did a lot of improv. We, like we used to do improv tournaments when I was in high school. So I was on the theater team and we would travel all throughout the South, all throughout the state uh, doing improv tournaments. Uh, we did good. We, we won quite a few tournaments. Um, if you, you know depends on what a person wants to do. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's a great skill to have for anything in media, because even though you might not go into doing improv comedy per se, you know, if you're good at improv, then it's going to make you good on anybody's podcast, anybody's live event, anybody's, you know, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great skill to cultivate. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's something I did it for a year and a half and it was one of the best oh, things cool. I ever, I ever have, um, have done. So I, I definitely recommend it to people. One thing though, is that a lot of those improvs have been wokeified. So maybe that's there's, great, yeah. maybe there's yeah. more now these days. It'd be great if some company came up and started doing based improv where you can just, I thought, do, I think that would be great. That's a, how good would that be? Idea. I mean, we'll if you, tell if you some of your comedian that, friends. Yeah, if yeah. you start that, I want to join because I've, I've, what I really wanted to do beyond what, what we do is a, I, I want to do, uh, you know, good sketch comedy. That's, that's not woke. Uh, I've, I've been wanting to do that for a long time. And, and the main difficulty is getting people together to do it. Cause it kind of takes, takes people living together at the same area. It's just really difficult to do if your friends are 500 miles away and all that. So maybe one day we'll see. Um, but yeah, I think that would be great to have more, more Bay's red pill comedy for sure. Yeah, I mean, just even academies that do it. Um, there are other guys. Like, I'm friends with Count Dankula. I mean, he's not close to you, but he's trying to do the same thing at the moment. I could put you in touch with him, but he's just so far away. It's probably not going to be much good to you. Um, it's really hard. Like, yeah, we, I've, I've reached out to, you know, a few people in the U.S. as well. But, you know, we're, we're a huge multiple country country where it's yeah. like 
too you know, far you away. You should, I, I'd love to see you do some of that, man. It's already great what you're, I love that. I love how you develop this because I love the 1980s movies. I lived in Los Angeles, uh, for a while and, but I've always loved those 1980s movies. I think your choice of your aesthetic is excellent, right? And of course the whole like commando style soundtrack, synth wave. I love that shit. It's great what you've got. Thanks. Your, cho- your choice for the, the brand. Um, so I'll just jump into this, uh, I'll jump into the question here. So Jay, do you have, do you have any advice on staying positive in these dark times? Recently, I've felt despondent uh, and in a way I've never before in my life. I have young children and I'm very fearful of what the future may bring. Thanks. That's a bit, it's heavy question, but yeah. Well, I mean, I, I keep things in a, a long distance perspective, like meta perspective. I don't get bogged down in the you know details. If you're, if, you know, if you're following a lot of the black pill news every day, you know, maybe take a week off of that, take a month off of that, focus on, uh, focus on other things like um, take some time off and read literature or something, right? Like, like don't focus on a lot of the bad black pill stuff for too long or the dark stuff. I've done that in the past and it's got me really depressed. So that was, that's one thing you can do. Like make yourself go do something um, different, read a good book or something like that. This literature, that's not dark, Um, you know, try to stay faithful in terms of the orthodox church i would say continue going even when you don't feel like it make yourself do it you'll get in the habit of it um you know continue to read the bible every day if you can make yourself do it um those are the best things i could think of for you know not getting depressed and uh, oh uh, well other obvious things like you know look if you're still eating garbage food stop eating garbage food because that will actually affect your mood you can get a lot of people have, I think, depression and mental illness, uh, not everything, but largely from these horrible American diets. I mean, we eat the worst stuff ever, which makes, I'm thinking people are going nuts, right? So um, opt out of the system. Um, if, if you have like serious kind of neurological types of things, I'm not a doctor, but I'm saying like in my case, uh, you know, I had the same problems Jordan Peterson had, Michaela Peterson had with, um, you know, gut issues. And so I went carnivore that helped me that cured my issues. So, you know, think about those things, think about getting out of big cities, moving to the country. I mean, those are all the things I would say. Yeah. I mean, I just add to that as when, when I knew uh, living in America is that I've noticed particularly about American food, this tiers of food, your bottom tier of eggs, your eggs have these yellow yolks at the bottom tier that just doesn't exist anywhere else. That I, you know, so you really have to be careful not to eat that lowest uh, produce yeah. um, because point. you just will be, it's just junk. Uh, even though it's still chicken, it's not going to have the stuff you need in it yeah. if it's yellow yolk, right? right? You got to buy it from wherever. But okay, so next one, uh, we'll, I'll try to get through these as quick as possible. Um, so uh, I don't know who this is, but I'll just say, uh, what do you think about Bishop uh, Richard Williamson and his general views on the Council of Nicaea and Arianism? Uh, and who are who are both of your favorite authors? Maybe just answer the first question because the other one's a bit um, first. Right, so, I mean, R- Bishop Williamson is the, uh, you know, pretty famous trad SSPX bishop who's uh, politically speaking very red-pilled. Um, but obviously, you know, I, I I went to the SSPX mass for probably seven years in my 20s. So, you know, I, I know that world pretty good. Um, and I have less interest in that world, theologically speaking, obviously, because I'm not a, a Thomist. I'm not a Roman Catholic anymore. So theologically, I would disagree, but, uh, you know, I think probably in a lot of the geopolitical stuff, he's probably on the right page. Uh, what, what are your views on Galatianism, uh, Gallicanism, G-A-L-L-I-C-A-N-I-ism? I think that if you look at the history of, uh, orthodoxy, 
in France. Uh, go look at the streams that I did with Snack, who's a French, a French Orthodox friend of mine. And we go into the history of Gallicanism and how that's really just a manifestation of the older Orthodox idea of France as an uh, autocephalous Orthodox church. And that's really the model of the church uh, the, that we see coming out of uh, uh, Council of Ephesus, right, is to have independent, uh, not always, but in some cases, autocephalous churches, right? So uh, the Council of Ephesus grants to, I think, Georgia um, or to Cyprus, I think, uh, autocephaly. And, you know, if you think about the Roman Catholic papal system, there's, there's, even, there's no such thing as autocephalous churches because everyone's under the Pope. So, you know, independent autocephalous churches itself is kind of a proof of orthodoxy. That's Gallicanism is a sort of manifestation of that traditional conciliar tendency. Right, right. Um, okay, here's another one. Uh, with gracious reverence for Mr. Dyer, we'd appreciate his perspective on the following. If the Eastern Orthodox Church preserves the unbroken line of the apostles and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, why would the Holy Ghost allow the Ottoman sack of Constantinople in 1450 to occur when it did not happen to the Western Church? That's the first part of the question. Yeah, this is a terrible uh, logical fallacy argument that we hear from a lot of Roman Catholics because the assumption is that I can read into providential events some significance that somehow is a blessing uh, of God's favor on the Roman Church over against her enemies when I can give you multiple instances when the papacy was actually besieged uh, by Muslims, when uh, the Pope was locked up in the Vatican, Pius IX, by the revolutionaries. Was that, is that God blessing the revolutionaries? I mean, it's just arbitrary. I mean, if you read City of God, St. Augustine wrote a whole tract defending the notion that Rome collapsed because of Christianity. The pagans at that time were saying that the collapse of Christianity, or excuse me, the collapse of Rome was due to Rome's acceptance of Christianity. And so Augustine argued that you can't argue from providential cir circumstances to the truth or falsity of religion because religions uh, uh, are persecuted. Uh, I mean, we might look at the fourth century and say that, okay, well, the semi-Aryans and the Arians had a dominance in the fourth century. So Athanasius was wrong because they had the numbers and they had the imperial blessing and they were almost defeated. So it has nothing to do with the truth or, truth or falsity. It's a stupid, fallacious argument, and it doesn't even take into account that when Byzantium fell, it was after the union was signed. So it was a uniate Roman Catholic empire when it fell. So that, that, uh, Novus, that answers the second part of your questions as well. I think that, uh, I'll just go into the third part. What are your thoughts, uh, Jay on the Russian Orthodox church claiming primacy over all Eastern Orthodox, uh, sees in light of the infiltration of the church by the KGB. And thank you. Looking forward to the discussion. So, yeah. Yeah, so I've done multiple streams with uh, multiple historians of the Orthodox Church, including bishops, uh, Metropolitan Jonah, who knows the history of the Russian Church very well, probably an expert on that area. We've done uh, two or three live streams. I've done live streams with a uh, famous uh, Moscow uh, desk uh, guy, embassy guy during the Cold War, Jim Jotras. We've done, I think, three or four live streams covering this topic. So there's not a situation where uh, there's this total dominance of the entirety of the Russian Orthodox Church during the Cold War. Partly this is why you have the existence of ROCOR, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is the people who were expatriates who came to the West because they were persecuted by the Soviets, by the Bolsheviks. So you have to understand that it's a lot more complex than that. And the KGB actually had a system where they ranked people by tiers in the Russian Orthodox sphere. So there were people who were uh, compromised, likely to compromise, and uncompromisable within the totality of the Russian Orthodox jurisdiction. That's not talking about Rokor in the West. 
So it's not this all or nothing thing where the KGB just put everybody into the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia and they ran everything as this top-down scenario. It was much more complex than that. And uh, the Russian church, there might have been times when a KGB bishop or someone like this tried to say that they had primacy. But the irony is that nowadays that attempt to have primacy over all orthodoxy is being done by the EP, by Patriarch Bartholomew. And so he's actually the one doing the papal move. It's not the, the, the Moscow Patriarch doing that. And that's because the EP is uh, 100% clearly publicly under the influence of the U.S. State Department. That's why they support the Ukrainian schismatics. And why do you uh, think that orthodoxy is holding out better against liberalism than, say, other churches like Roman Catholic or the Church of England? This is someone else's question, not mine. Just go. I think it's verifiable in terms of uh, the the public stances of the bishops of the of the uh, even the patriarchates who are tending to lean liberal. They're still not as liberal as what we see in uh you know episcopalianism or the church of england or i mean church of england is voting right now to get rid of the idea of god the father so uh i mean protestantism was essentially conquered via the big oligarchical families in the middle of the night of the 20th century uh, i've done a lot of research and commentaries lectures on that from the documents from the writings of these people um and they talk about how they did it by buying off the seminaries and putting you know uh, building seminaries for various religious institutions uh that they did that very easily in the twenties and thirties with Protestantism. And then <clears throat> the doctrinal warfare program was largely geared towards co-opting the uh, Roman Catholic institution at the time of Vatican II. Um, David Wimhoff's excellent book covers that in about 800 pages. Uh, I recommend that, but the difference is that the Orthodox church is certainly under the same assault, but there's something different about orthodoxy in that it's decentralized. So it's, it's hierarchical, but it's also decentralized. So the jurisdictions don't overlap. Uh, so you might destroy one jurisdiction or one national church, but because there's this firewall of decentralization, it's less susceptible, not un- totally unsusceptible, less susceptible to a top-down uh, control structure. But we're absolutely dealing with all the same problems. I just think that it's not the same scale as you see in Rome and Protestantism. So the key thing you're saying there is the decentralization. I guess the Church of England does have an element of that. But perhaps there's something in the structure of orthodoxy. Perhaps it's just because it it, it stayed with the original truths helps it, I suppose. It just has that about it. I yeah, think. I mean, the whole ethos of orthodoxy is that we don't change. So, yeah. you know, people criticize orthodoxy. Oh, you're frozen in the Middle Ages. We're fine with that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we want. We don't want to change. Yeah, uh, in fact, we have yes. councils that anathematize people that try to change the church. So, yeah. Well, guys, I think that we've got some great stuff for the movement there. Uh, everyone needs to go and look at those things. I haven't watched uh, those, so I'll go and I'll be doing it. So everyone should at home. Jay, thanks so much for coming on, dude. And really, what hey, great, great, great stuff. conversation. Great stuff at the end there. I have to cut it in somehow. But yeah, <laughs> um, all the best and uh, God bless. And uh, goodbye, everyone at home there. And uh, thanks to Jay. All right. Absolutely. Thank you, too, man. Have a good night.